There are many people in the horse world who have been around a long time and have lots of stories to tell. Ernest Forsberg wanted to be a calf roper when he was eight years old. After years of hard work, he made it to the NFR as a calf roper, then a team roper. He knows what life on the rodeo circuit was like back then. It's, it's changed so much because back when I was growing up, I never team roped till I was about 1966. And I'd already been to final three times. And I was coming home and I'd never been to the rodeo in Salinas. So I entered Salinas and I was going to come home because back then we'd go to 40 or 50 rodeos uh -huh. to make the finals. Now they go to 100. You know, and it just, it eats up everything. Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and on each episode, I bring you stories of people and their lives with horses. Nowadays, Ernest Forsberg is a farrier. Yes, at age 67, he is in demand for his knowledge about horses' feet. But he still ropes on the senior rodeo circuit, too. On this episode, I visit with Ernest at his home in South Bakersfield. I kind of bounce all over the place as we talk about rodeo, horsemanship, and the farrier's life. You'll get a glimpse at what it was like to travel the rodeo circuit in the 60s from a man that's done it. Please enjoy my interview with Ernest Forsberg. Welcome to the Wolf Podcast. How are you doing this morning? Real good, real good. So you've been uh, around horses all your life. Can you give us just a, maybe a little brief history of, uh, of your life with horses? I grew up in Chatsworth. My uncle, Jess Todd, more or less raised me. And I always wanted to be a cowboy. And when I started out, he asked me what I wanted to be, and I said a calf roper. So when I was like 13, 14 years old, I'd come home from school every day at noon in my job, but we had a, a work program then in school. You'd take your normal classes, then you got off and you had to go to work and report in, you know, and everything. And so I'd go home and I had to rope 100 calves a day. Wow. He said, if you want to be a calf roper, you're going to work at it. That was my job. And uh, when I was 20, I went to my first NFR. Uh -huh. And then I went till 1970, and then I retired. I was 27 years old. Wow. Because there wasn't enough money in it. And when it first started, you could make a really good living. And then the economy got to going up, and everything got to costing more. And I just said, that's enough. And then I quit, and I probably didn't rope for four or five years and then I got back into the team roping end of it. Yeah, I roped calves in the NFR from 64 to 70. And what was that that like compared to the way things are today at the NFR? It was a lot different. Was it? The calves were bigger. Our calves, there was a weight limit back then of 350 pounds and when the calves came into the NFR we didn't work them. They never got touched until we backed in the box and roped them. And every, there was three sets of calves, a set of black calves, a set of Herefords, and a set of white Bremers. Wow. And they were all hand-picked, and they all weighed 350 pounds. And it, the horse came more into play then. Right. Nowadays, you watch the NFR, they're roping, they're tying them a lot faster. Yes. In 1964, I was 10-8 on a calf, and that was the fastest calf tied. Oh my God. At the NFR that year, because... The calves were big and strong, and it was a, I think they've taken a, a lot out of it because the calves are so small. 
Yeah, how much are the calves weighing? Now? Around two hundred. Around two hundred. So they're yeah. a lot lighter. There. A calf in rodeo today that weighs two thirty, two forty, is a huge calf. Was the NFR back in? Was it in Las Vegas? Was it? No, okay. the NFR. The first year I went, it was in Los Angeles in the sports arena. Really. And then it went there. It was there for a couple, three years, and then they moved it to Oklahoma City, and it was there for twenty some years. Right. And it really built it up, but the money wasn't there then. But money was worth a lot more then. Right, right. You know what I mean? Used to, you win ten, fifteen thousand dollars in a year, you'd have half of it in the bank. People rodeoed for a living. The people that was doing it then, they were cowboys. You know, people that would grew up in the sport, and today it's not that way. Right, they're just rodeo. Yeah, a lot of the riding event guys can't even ride a horse. And so you learned to ride by roping those 100 calves a day, but who was teaching you about horses back then? Did you just learn? My uncle, from- my, my grandfather, name was Jess Todd, uh-huh. the same as my uncle, and uh, he run thoroughbred ranches, and they raised racehorses. And him and my uncle, his son, Gene, raised a horse called Native Diver, who was the first California millionaire. They raised a horse called Azure Tay, they worked for a man named L.K. Shapiro. And my, my uncle, when he came out of the Army after World War II, went to work for this man and never had another job his whole life. That's all he did. Is that right? And wow. my granddad did the same thing. He raised, you know, run, run thoroughbred ranches. There used to be lots of big thoroughbred ranches. They all had their own vet clinics, their own racetracks. You know, it's not like it is today. There's a few, but... In the, at the time, that valley down there in the, in the San Fernando Valley was covered with racehorse ranches. Right. And then there were a lot of tracks down there. Yeah. Still Every are. racehorse ranch had a track. Right. They had their own vet there. They had, you know, you, the people that really worked with horses. But they were, they were kind of building thoroughbred racehorses. And how does that translate into cowboy work and roping and things well, like that? 90% of your quarter horses are seven-eighths thoroughbred. You know, it all goes back to when horses were just horses, you know, and right. then they started breeding them up, and uh, then the Quarter Horse Association came in back in the 40s, 30s and 40s, and they started breeding. But most of your most of your uh, quarter horses nowadays, you look back in their, in their ancestry, and there's a thoroughbred in there. There might be a paint horse. That's why we have these crop outs. Right, right. You know, everything goes back to the old foundation horses. And how did you learn about training back then? What were you working with the horse to do? Were you breaking colts? Well, I did when I was young. Uh-huh. But when I started, all I wanted to do was be a roper. You That's know? all you had. Is and just... there's never, hardly ever been a horse trainer that could be a professional Capro. They're too busy worried about their horse. Uh-huh. But horses are a funny, funny breed of animal. They're uh, some of them take it and some of them don't. Some of them like it and some of them don't. Every horse they're like humans. Right. You know, some horses are adapted to that. And if you you can't force them to do it. You can, but it don't stay on. You know, it's and did you have one particular horse who uh kind of was your horse what that that got you to the NFR time and time again? Yeah, my first horse that I went to the NFR on, I had a little old black horse that my uncle had bought me, and I'd won good on him all winter long. And 
by the middle of June, he was give out. He completely quit. You know, he wasn't big enough, and I was very lucky to win what I won on him, and I bought a horse off an old man up in Idaho called, named Mo Sagers. And he was a gillbred horse that was a famous foundation with the old bird bred horses and stuff. And I went to the NFR on him the first year. And then I rode him the next year. And then I got lucky enough, I have a, a distant relative that had this horse. I called him Shorty. And uh, I traded him 25 team roping steers for him. Which the steers cost us a hundred bucks a piece. Wow! You know, back then, now they cost a thousand. Yeah. But uh, I drove from home. I shipped the steers to him, and I drove from my house to his in Toppenish, Washington. Mm -hmm. I'd never been on the horse. I bought him. I borrowed a trailer from him for a hundred dollars, and I drove to Pendleton. <laughs> the first calf I run on that horse in competition, I won the day money at Pendleton. Is that right? Wow! And I come home, I won. The next nine rodeos in a row. They wrote articles about him. Barry Burke ended up with him years later. Uh-huh. And uh, the greatest calf horse that ever lived. So were you just taking it on spec from this guy? No, I'd seen the horse. You'd seen I'd the wanted horse. him since I was, you know, for years. Right. And when I got him, the horse was only five years old. Amazing. But when he was two years old, they were hauling him to the rodeos, and he just worked. And could you, was it something you saw in his, in the way he worked, or was it his eye, or he his liked build? It. He liked it. Yeah. He could run. Dean Oliver tried to buy him, and I let him ride him one summer. Him and I were traveling together, and uh, the horse, when he was like seven years old, was crippled. But back in those days, we didn't know what navicular was. was right. Wasn't able to, to fix it. You could nerve him. Right. But it, that lasts maybe a year, you know, and then their foot would fall off. It was it was pretty bad. But uh, I traded, I took the horse to Bob Ragsdale's and turned him out when he was seven years old. And that was in 1968. And uh, that winner, a kid named Patterson, who rodeo, had been winning. And he wanted the horse. And they gave me $5,500 for him, and he was crippled. Oh, my God. And they hauled him to New Mexico, had a vet clip the nerves on his front feet where he couldn't feel. Right. And uh, he went on for another two or three years, but he never was the same. Yeah. You know, he just... That breed of horses, he was a barred bred horse, and they have a tendency to get navicular. It's in their makeup. You I know, the way. And horses are the same way today. Most horses that get navicular is because of the way they're built. Uh-huh. And, you know, bad shoeing and things like that. And can you tell... I know you're... And you, you spent the life... Uh, doing farrier work. Can yeah. you tell that from a horse when just standing there looking at him? Yeah, a horse will tell you when it's coming on. Yeah. They'll dig a hole with their toe. And what they did is, 200 years ago, they have a shoe called the Arkansas Navicular Shoe. Uh-huh. And it just raises them up. And the, the ligaments and tendons go down around that navicular bone. It's a smooth bone. Right. And what happens is circulation. They get bruised in there. And the circulation cuts down, and the bone gets pitted and gets a uh, little gross on it. And right. when the ligaments go around it, it rubs on those ligaments, and it makes them, it aches. It hurts. So what they'll do is they'll take their foot, and they'll dig them a hole in their pen when they're standing uh -huh. and tilt their foot down like this. And they develop this shoe to put them in that position when they're working. And they developed that 200 years ago? Oh, it's, it was back. My granddad gave me a book. It was pre-Civil War. Is that right? And that shoe wow. was in there. 
amazing. You know, and it was, it's, it's just like horseshoeing today. I shoe a lot of really expensive horses, dressage horses and stuff, and I shot a lot of Olympic horses. And uh, you shoe them just like you shoe any other horse. A horse is a horse. Uh-huh. You shoe them the way they move. And if a horse, like a dressage horse, they've either got the movement or they don't. And did you kind of go into shoeing after your rodeo career was up? Is I started when I was probably 13. Really? Yeah. My granddad had made me trim all the mares and babies on this ranch. And uh, he wanted me to be a horseshoer. My stepdad was a horseshoer. Both my uncles were horseshoers. You know, I was raised... Under a horse. Yeah, (laughs) under a horse. But it, and I just, you know, I just, I liked it. Mm -hmm. And then I hated it. When I got to where I could win a lot of money, I said, why should I bend over and shoe horses when I can go out here and and win two or three thousand dollars in eight seconds, ten seconds? Yeah. And then when I, uh, I got six years, I went to rodeo hard and I quit. I got my tools back out. I was 27 years old and I went back to work. Wow. And I've been doing it ever since. That experience, it obviously got you exposed to a lot of different horses. So you got to, did you kind of pick your horses that you were using for roping? And Yeah, a horse, you can tell a horse, mainly I look at their eye. Uh-huh. And you can tell a lot of, uh, when you touch a horse, they know whether they like you or they don't like you. Right. You know, it's, a horse has still got that sixth sense that we don't have. You're either aggressive or you're, you back off and a horse will. 90% of the horses will let you do whatever you want to do to them as long as you don't hurt them. Right. Or make them feel scared. They flee. They're a fleeing animal. Yeah. And how are the training techniques um, differ today than they were back in the, say, the early 60s and such? Well, it's, it just depends. Most of the trainers... When they start out, to like to go to the snaffle bit fraternity. Right. The good trainers, the reason they win it year after year is when they start, they got a hundred horses to choose from. Uh-huh. And they've got four or five guys riding for them. And they'll pick the best four or five horses and they'll push them to that point. You know, one or two will make it and the rest of them don't. And um, is, we were, we were talking a little bit before we turned the mics on about Jimmy Williams. You were telling me about him and Val, Valdez, was it? Yeah. Yeah. He was a, he was a vaquero. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, he was, he was a spade bit trader from Mexico. He was up here, but he was a phenomenal horseman. I remember when I was a kid, my uncle took me. Jimmy Williams was there in Flint Ridge. And uh, we went up and I watched him work horses. Jimmy was, he was a snaffle bit trainer then. You know, he trained cutting horses, not cutting horses, but reining horses and working cow horses. And uh, it was phenomenal to watch this old man work. He could take a two-year-old and he never rushed him. You know, there wasn't this jobbing and spinning and beating and pounding. Right. And a lot of times he'd hook one to a cart. And he'd train him on a cart, Uh pulling a cart. Oh, wow. And... uh, just to watch him, he was a spade bit man. That's what he used. He never put a snaffle in the horse's mouth. He put the spade bit in there. And his philosophy was a snaffle breaks the bars down in the horse's mouth uh-huh. by pulling. Those bars have to be there. When they're young, they're real sensitive, and they, that's how you get a horse to work. You see a tough-mouthed horse, well, his bars are just flattened and numb. 
but he'd put that spade bit in there and he could ride them with a piece of twine. Goodness. You know, and, and make them do the same thing a guy did with a big old snaffle bit yanking and pulling and spurring and kicking. Now, was that because he conditioned them to that, or was he riding with his legs? Or yeah, he rode with he rode with everything. It was just like the horse was part of it, you know. Oh, wow. And it it was it was something to watch when I was young, and it made a big impression on me. And but it takes a a lot longer to train a horse like that. Oh yeah. And most people today are a little bit uh, impatient. Well, about it's that. the the horse business. Everything has to be like in the fraternities and these things. Well, they want them to do it in their two year old year. They're running these racehorses, and they're two years old. And if they run as hard as they can run, they're going to break down. Right. I've got a good friend right now that has probably 11 horses at the track. And within the last two weeks, he's lost two. Two died, and one slap fractured a knee. And, you know, and they win a lot of money, but most of the money is in that two- and three-year-old year. And they're too young. They're babies. Yeah, they're just they're just not fully formed right there. No, they're not mentally formed. They're not their bone. Their knees are still open. They're not closed up, and they get chips in their knees. You know, and it's it's just like taking a young kid and taking him out there and just working his butt off. Pretty soon, he hadn't got anything left. You know, he's not going to do it anymore. From your years in the uh, NFR, what's one of your favorite stories? Whether it happened to you or some something that you saw that you may, might be able to oh one time i had a, a really close friend of mine and we got done at pendleton and he wanted to make the nfr he was sitting 16th his name was dick feldman and we'd been together since school we were best friends we uh-huh. went everywhere together we rodeoed together and he was like my brother and he said you i wanted to come home because i'd one second at pendleton i sat fourth in the standings i said i'm gonna go home and rest my horse he said we need to go you know, he said, it's, we can't, I've got to make it this year. I'm not going to be able to do it. So we left Pendleton and went to Little Rock, Waco, Oklahoma City, Omaha, Perry, Florida, Raleigh, North Carolina, St. Louis. And then I was up at the Cow Palace the next day. And I'd won at every one of them rodeos. I'd had a really good little trip. Right. And Dick couldn't win nothing. He was just <laughs> having a fit. And... Uh, so I told him, I said, we left St. Louis, and I was up the next day, and I made arrangements to ride somebody else's horse. I said, you just bring the horses. You're not up for two or three days, and I'll fly out there and ride Bull Bar on my first one, and you can bring Shorty, and when you get there, I'll ride him on my second one. Well, I went there, went to the motel, come back out to Rodeo Grounds, and he's sitting there. He drove <laughs> straight through from St. Louis, Missouri. It hadn't even unloaded the horses, and I unloaded Shorty, and I let him roll, and he was such a great horse. I saddled him up. I won the first day money. Wow. And I won the cow palace that year. That was in 1968. Oh, man. And uh, the next year, he shot himself. Oh, no. Yeah, he couldn't. You know, we went to the building rodeos, and he didn't win anything, and he was deep in debt, and that was the most tragic thing that ever happened to me. Oh, you know, and that he just couldn't take it. And that, you know, that brings up a good point. Life on uh, the rodeo life is pretty tough. I mean, the rodeo life is real tough. These guys are out there and uh, they've got it to the point now that a normal person can't rodeo. Right. Unless they're outstanding. Everybody out there, they don't, I'd say they don't rodeo for a living. 
because they've got sponsors. Yes. You know, and they're just going at them. It's all, it's more of a glory deal than it is going out there and making a living, having a home. Yes. And being able to pay your own way. Everybody has got somebody backing them. And it's become a rich man's event. Yeah. It's like in the barrel race. Years ago, you know, you could buy a horse for $2,500, $3,000. Pretty nice horse. And you could go win on it. Nowadays, you've got to spend upwards of $107,000 for a horse. Holy cow. And they spend that money to win 100000 the next year. And usually the next year, the horse is done. Right. right. You know, it's, it's a different, they've all got drivers. They've got people taking care of, they've got a rig that costs 200000 The trailer yeah. costs 150 to pick up fifty, And then they've got two horses for another 100000 And at the end of the year, they win 100000 it's kind of, um, it's, it's ironic because rodeo really started out as just kind of like the cowboys getting together out yeah, and seeing who had the best ranch horse and who had yeah, the best. Yeah, it was, it, was it was man and horse and, and uh, it was more uh, a working right. deal, working type deal. But it's developed into, and now they do have some money. The finals this year, or the last two or three years is... When I was going, the day money paid anywhere from three hundred to seven hundred. Now it pays twenty six thousand. <laughs> twenty six thousand. Oh my god! But you know, and it, but those guys need the money because ninety percent of them don't have a dime when they get there. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's a tough, tough deal. There was a good friend of mine, Bob Wagner, years ago. He was a bull rider, and he'd won the world championship, and he had to borrow money to get home on. Oh my gosh! He won the world championship. He still yeah, had the ball. Yeah, didn't have any money. God. You know, it's just they just lived from day to day, and it got real bad in about 1970. Before that, people made a good living. They could own a home. They could have uh-huh. a place, have a family. You know, and usually the families travel together, and you didn't stay in a trailer. Right. I never had a living quarter trailer like that one out there until I was almost 60 years old. Is that right? Yeah, you stayed in the motel because. Motel six was six bucks, uh-huh. you know, and you could eat a steak for two dollars. But now it's got so it it costs you about eight to ten thousand a month just to go. So you've got a big nut you got to crack. That's oh yeah, it's it's, a, business, yeah. it's unbelievable. My nephews went real hard year before last. He ended up twentieth oh, in the team roping, and. He didn't make any money. You know, he won $67,000, but my God, it just, you know, you just eat it up with the fuel, $3 a gallon, $2.50 a gallon, you know, and it's, you're getting eight miles a gallon. I used to have a car that'd get 17 miles a gallon pulling a one-horse trailer. (laughs) You know, it's it's just a different deal. It is. But, you know, people, it was, the people in rodeo are great people. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's. Well, look at the crowds that show up for uh, NFR Christmas, uh, you know, the, oh, yeah. the Cowboy Christmas. Well, 80% of the people that go to Vegas don't even go to the rodeo. Right. Because they can't hold them. That building only holds 18,000. Mm-hmm. And there's a half million people there. And it fills the most. It saves. My uncle was in the Nevada legislature back in the 30s. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And he told me the first year they brought it there, they couldn't hardly sell the tickets. They were giving them away and they, they packed the place, but it brought. Two hundred million dollars into the town of Las Vegas. Uh-huh. It saved seventeen thousand jobs because that time of the year was their slow time. They yes. just shut everything down. Right. 
but it, it's evolving. When you let's talk about um, the the training aspect of training a roping horse, when you were roping those hundred calves a day, did was it just a matter of repetition, or were you was there somebody helping you along? That? Oh yeah, my uncle was there all the time, and I was lucky enough to have some of the greatest ropers in the world at that time there. Uh huh. Like Gene McLaughlin, his brother was an eight-time and seven-time world champion. And Gene helped me with my tying and things like that. But my uncle roped really good. Mm -hmm. But when I roped those calves, I didn't rope on my good horse. I got to run two calves a week on my good horse. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. I mean, he'd bring horses in there that he bought at the horse sale. And they weren't rope horses, but we set up an alley 50 feet wide and 300 feet long where the calves couldn't duck and dive. And I'd just back them in there and I'd go rope. You know, and crawl off and not worry about the horse. I never worried right. about my horse. My good horse would work. Uh -huh. I kept him tuned up, but these other horses, all I wanted to do was rope them, get down there in time. Yeah. Uh, what was some of the, uh, maybe some of the advice, the best advice you got from a, a horseman that when you were doing that kind of stuff that helped get you to the next level with horses? Because you're riding all kinds of for want of a better term, maybe junk horses? Yeah, that's what they were. They were just sail barn horses. Yeah, they didn't know anything, so no. you had to get on them, did you? But after a period of time, they would. But about the time I'd get them to where you could rope on them, my uncle would sell them. They'd sell them. <laughs> <laughs> but it, uh, no, it was, it's, it's an experience. But horses, they're special horses, and I've been fortunate my whole life to have the very best horses. When I was in my 40s, I had, I was roping with Leo Camarillo uh -huh. and Ricky Green, one of the best healers in the world, come and ask me to rope. We were at St. Paul and St. Paul, Oregon, and I had two really great head horses. And that's the only reason they asked me to rope. Is when a healer looks at a, t a guy to head for him, he looks at the horse first. Because if you don't have that horse, you can't compete. Right. It don't matter how good you rope. If your horse is a piece of junk and it's wore out, that's that's the the hardest part of the whole deal. That's the criteria that a healer yeah. is looking for. He's oh yeah, they're they're looking at the but the the roles have kind of reversed now. There's a jillion healers that can really really rope, and there's just very few headers because the head horses cost so much, and the, the time you spend with them, it takes years. Is it so? It's harder on the head horse. Yeah, because what a horse when you're heading, it's about seventy percent header. You've got to score. You've got to get out of the barrier. You got to get them roped, and you got to make them healable for that guy behind you. Right. You can't just hook them. And nowadays they do, but they rope different kind of cattle. Oh, well, okay. usually the cattle today are small, uh -huh. and they have small horns. And these guys have got where they can throw. 25 feet, 30 feet, and rope them. Wow. And then just leave. Well, this year at the NFR, they brought some big steers. They're fat, they're slick, and their horns are huge. He's getting four or five headers a night miss. Oh, wow. You know, and it, it's... Because uh, there's it, always that debate over what's tougher, heading or healing. But yeah, well, healing takes a lot of work. Uh-huh. But heading, if you've got a good horse, and you, you know, you have to be talented, and you have to know what you're doing. But your horse, if he don't score perfect and get out of the barrier and catch that steer right there, 
and let you rope him and handle him. And it takes a certain kind of horse to do that. There's a lot of horses you can rope on. They call them jackpot horses. Right. You know, where they go to a roping and they'll rope 30 or 40 a day on them. Your good horse, you don't rope very many on him because they've only got so many runs. They're like a car. Right. After you drove it so long, it's wore out. And they get smart. Like at the NFR, those horses that are there are ducking so hard because the building is so small. Right. And they throw all that rope and those horses duck. And pretty soon they can't get a dally, you know, and it, it because really, they're ducking so fast. Yeah, uh, they're yeah. leaving so fast, you know, and it's there's a few guys. Petey Williams perfected a deal of reaching, and he's the one that started that. Uh-huh. He could reach thirty feet and rope a steer, but he had an old horse he called Viper, and that horse would get on his front end right there and just roll those steers. Most of these guys' horses, when they reach that far and they leave, they know the jerk's coming, so they're leaving as hard as they can. But when that steer turns, the hitter can't, don't have hardly a chance to catch it. You know, Speedy, he could just reach and rope them, turn them, and he had a kid healing for him named Rich Skelton. He'd just come around there, one, two, heal them, and they'd be four. Wow. You know, and now there's 50 guys that can reach like that. Yeah. Or 100, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's evolved, and it always will evolve. Everybody says it can't get no faster. Well, it will. It just keeps getting faster yeah. and faster. It's just like golf. The guys say, oh, he'll never break 58, except 59. Well, now there's a 58. Right. And an old man <laughs> shot it. You yeah. know, it's, but it's, uh, horses are, head horses especially are special. Yeah. I had to put one down here last year. Oh, no. And uh, I'd won a lot of money on him. In fact, when I got sick with that heart deal, I'd won enough money on him to pay my mortgage for a year. Oh, wow. You know, and. He broke, he fractured a bone in his pastern joint. And how do you do that? Just hit wrong. Just hit wrong. You know, you got a 1,300-pound horse and a steer, and they're, they're moving so fast. Those horses that are athletic, uh-huh. you know, they uh, and they just hit wrong. They're working on feet no bigger than our hands. Right, right. That's a lot of weight on that front end. Yeah, I took him, and uh, I had him vet look at him and everything, and we treated him as much as we could, and I gave him a year. And finally, he started foundering in that other foot. He got to playing. He got to feeling good. It was healing. Uh-huh. But when he got to playing and feeling good, well, he re-injured it. Uh, yeah. So I had to, had, you know, it wasn't, wasn't fair to him for him to be that sore. And you're actually uh, still doing senior rodeos, are you? No, I still go. You still go? Yeah. I was, I joined the senior rodeo. They started the Senior Rodeo Association 40 years ago. Uh-huh. And I got into it after I decided I didn't want to go fight the kids anymore. Right. And uh, I was on the board of directors for like 18 years. And then the last seven years I was in there, from 2000 to 2007, I was the president of it. And it really grew. It got to where it was it was viable. I it, think the I, kids were coming. I think I saw you were uh, in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You got inducted to the Hall of Fame. But, you know, and I won some championships. I did before I become president, and then I didn't win anymore. <laughs> because it was, but I had some really good people. A guy named Bob Thane, who was big in the PRCA, and uh, he came in and helped me. And, and another guy named Phil Rollins, who was a movie producer. Oh, wow. And he helped me with the finances, you know, keeping the books right. And, and how many uh, how many senior events are there? Are there well, we had, the, the best year we had, we had 97. Wow. And... Canada and the United States. We were gone all the time. Okay. And uh, now it's down to 10 or 12. 
because if you have to make it viable for guys that are coming up that's 40 years old to be able to win enough money to afford to go. Yeah. And that's the group that was right behind me were older guys, and they didn't see that. They thought it was all for fun, and it's kind of dwindled down. But it was a, it was really good for seven, eight years where we could you could go make some money. Did you spend a lot of time on the road All doing the time. this? So, yeah. A lot of times I would fly home. I'd have I had the guy I roped with and retired. And they were fairly wealthy, and uh-huh. he'd take the horses and go, and then I'd go to the rodeos. We always set it up where you go to eight or ten rodeos in two weeks, and then I'd come home for two weeks, then go back. You know, but it was a full time job. I bet. So there, so there you were. You were on the road in the '60s in the rodeo, and then you're on the road in the 2000s on the rodeo. Yeah, what yeah, I've done it my whole life. <laughs> you know, it's, I never did quit. I uh, years ago they used to have the the team rope, and there was only one world champion, uh-huh. and they would these guys. They'd only take 15 guys to the final. And back then, I had him come. I took Ricky Green and got him to the finals at one year. And Sean Howe, they come to me on the 4th of July, and they'd run out of horsepower, and their, horse, their partner's horses were done. And I'd go with them for six or eight weeks, and we'd win enough money to get them to the NFR. Uh-huh. And both of them at the other end screwed me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we was, I, the deal I made with them, I'll go with you and turn your steers, but I get to go to the NFR with you. Right. Because back then, they'd take 15 guys, and they would pick a partner. Oh, I got it, you know, yeah. To go. Yeah. And now they've got it where the headers and the healers are both world champions. Mm. But it's it's changed so much because back when I was growing up, I never team roped till I was about 1966. And I'd already been to final three times. Mm. And uh, I was coming home, and I'd never been to the rodeo in Salinas. So I entered Salinas, and I was going to come home because back then we'd go to forty or fifty rodeos uh-huh. to make the finals. Now they go to a hundred, you know, and it just it eats up everything. The gas stations and the, and the hotels horses. are getting all your money, and the horses too. It's and the horses are breathing that diesel smoke, you know. And so I came home and I went to Salinas, and I was in the calf roping, and the guy, this Jack Gomez, was roping with a guy, and he cut his thumb off in the practice pit before the rodeo. So this guy come to me, and he knew I'd roped all my life, and he said, would you head for me? Well, I borrowed the best horse I could find, and we had a chance to win it. We won the first round. Wow. And then come back, and he missed the last steer. But then I went on that year and went to 10 rodeos and made, ended up 10th for the year. Wow. You know, Pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it was – but back then, the team roping was basically in California. Uh-huh. It wasn't like it was. I think I won $4,000. Wow. You know, for the whole year, but – People can't realize, I've had kids here that come and stay and they're rodeoing and they don't realize how much money was worth back then. Yes. Yeah. First truck I bought cost me 1600 That truck sitting out there, 70000 yeah. <laughs> You know? And it just, it doesn't equate. Right. But the, 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 the money, Brent Lewis was here back when he was in his prime and he said, how'd you guys make any money back then? And I got out my old book and I showed him. I said, here's the day money at Fort Worth. It paid $2,800. Our entry fees was 100 Now they're 500 wow. And they only take 50 guys, so the day money don't really pay anymore. And yet, you're paying five times the entry fee. Yeah. You know, 
But back then, you could, you know, the, the highest entry fee we paid was a hundred dollars. Did so now you're doing farrier work, and you do probably horses from all sorts of disciplines, right? Oh yeah. And is there one favorite thing that you I do? shoot a lot of dressage horses? Back in the '80s, I shot most of the horses that went to the Olympics in LA, uh-huh. and I got into that way before that. But I mean, I was shooing. That's all I did was shoot dressage horses, and those horses are they're a cross between a thoroughbred and a workhorse. How did you get? How did you kind of get into that specialty? Did, uh, did I was shooing horses, and the the people that was riding them uh-huh. liked the way I did it, and that's how you build your business. You do good work, right? You know, and it's it's like now I'm semi-retired. I only work two or three days a week, uh-huh. but I get paid good when I do work, and. Uh, I go into L.A. every Tuesday and chew horses there at Griffith Park, and I go to the paddock and chew some horses. I mean, the one woman that I chew for is Marta Kaufman, who's the creator of Friends. Oh, is that right? Yeah, and she goes to Europe go. and buys these real nice horses, uh-huh. and she gives a lot of money for them. I mean, a lot of money, and brings them over here, and then she's got a breeding program. She's a very smart lady, you know, and she breeds these horses, and... Uh, they started artificially inseminating, you know. Uh-huh. They, they take a stud. The stud very seldom ever even gets them out of mare. You know, they just right. put them on the dummy, collect the sperm, and they plant the eggs. And these, she's got several recipient mares. Recipient mares, you know. And then they these babies are worth forty, fifty thousand when they hit the ground. Wow. You know, so it's the horse business has changed. Is it a little easier working on a dressage horse? They're a little bit taller and. Yeah. You don't have to yeah. bend over so well, far. <laughs> the thing about a dressage horse, everybody thinks you have to shoe them special. You just have to shoe them the way the horse is made. Uh-huh. I shot a horse one time for years, for probably his whole career. And he's the only horse that ever won a medal for the United States in the, in the Olympics. Wow. A horse called Keen for Hilda Gerns. Yeah. And he was a big old thoroughbred racehorse. Yeah. And she gives 750 bucks for him wow. at the Hemet Stock Farm. Amazing. But she watched him going across the pasture. And she said, man, that horse can move. And the gates they have, they call them the natural gates, but there's, you know, the pee-off and the passage right. and all that. Well, those, those gates are put on the horse. Uh-huh. But they've got to have the ability to do it. And it's, it's like a quarter horse is able to run fast. And some of them can run faster than others, you know. And you don't know. They get these breeds... And once in a while, one will come in there that out of Oklahoma by trailer, and he'll outrun everybody. Wow. You know, but they've got the breeding programs and stuff down so so tight now that it's pretty hard for a, a normal person to get into it. I bought a racehorse one time. I was working for this lady, and they owned a string of house of pancakes, and they had probably 30 horses at the track. And they had a colt there, and I'd trained him since he was a baby. And I said, if you ever, if you don't make it at the track, I want to buy him. Right. His name was Deadly Pursuit, and he was a ribs policy horse. And he was a firecracker, tough. And so they took him to the track, and he ran the fastest qualifying time in this race. Because those big races, they run, there'll be 100 horses trying to get in, and they'll only take 10. You know, and they'll race, they'll have 10 races one night, and they'll take the top the fastest 10 times out of that. Well, he ran the fastest qualifying time, and he chipped his knee. And 
the vet told him, said, don't, don't bring him back. But this race paid a lot of money. Yeah. You know, it was, and so they put him in there and. With the chip knee and everything. Yeah. Uh. And <laughs> coming out of the gate, the horse was run together and he fell down uh -huh. and more or less shattered his knee. And so they were going to put him down. I said, no, I want him. So I bought him. I gave him $1,500 for him. And I had a place in Moore Park at the time, and I had 180 acres next to me that belonged to a very wealthy guy. And he let me run my cattle and stuff out there because he didn't use it. Uh -huh. It was just barren land, and I kept the fences up and kept the water on it. I just took him out there and turned him out. Let him all, be a horse for a while, huh? All his hair fell out. You know, they had so many, those horses have so many drugs and stuff in them. Right. You know, trying to keep them at the top of their game. And... Uh, he just looked like a donkey out there. I mean, he, his hair fell out. He limped around, and I just forgot about him. And a year later, this guy that was training him asked me what I did with him. And I told him, I said, I just turned him out on the hill. He says, well, can he walk? And I said, he's sound. And he come out there, and this horse, I had him where I could, I'd drain him every evening, give him a little bit of drain, and I'd rattle the bucket. And he'd come running down off that mountain and run up there, he said, what are you going to do with him? I said, I'm going to make a rope horse. He said, no, he won't make a rope horse. He's a racehorse. And so <laughs> he talked me into getting my owner's license, and I took him, sent him back to the track. We went in partners. Uh -huh. And the horse run five races there at Los Alamitos and never run worse than second. Wow. And the first time he run, he went off at 35 to 1. I put $100 on his nose, and he won it. Oh my God! Because you know, like the they got the forms there. It says lots of speed, right. you know, great potential, but crippled. Yeah. <laughs> and so I run him for that one one season, and I went down there the last time, and he hated life. Oh really? So I said, I'm taking him home. Yeah. And the guy that was training him said, No. He said, He won't be happy at home. And they had a colt there. It was a, out of Azure Tay, who my granddad had raised and my uncle had raised, and he was gorgeous, and he wouldn't make it at the track. So I traded him for that horse. They took the horse to Bay Meadows, and he died on the truck on the way home. Twisted oh gut. You know, uh, got colic on the truck, and they were hauling him. He was just hating life, huh? Yeah. But That's a tough deal. It's it's tough. The things we ask horses to do. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's like working on horses. I had trained a lot of kids. The same kid works for me that works for Sean. He comes and helps me a couple of days a week. And just teaching them, that's the hardest thing to teach them. You can teach anybody to trim a foot and nail a shoe on. Right. But teaching them how to handle horses and how to, you know, know what a horse wants. And that's got to be somewhat difficult just because you're seeing, you're seeing spoiled horses, you're seeing working horses. What's the... When you've got a difficult horse that you're working with, do you have a special no, something? No, I doing? don't do nothing. I don't, I'm not there to train them. Right. I'm there to shoot them. Sure. I walk up and I put, every time I get a new horse, I walk up, and I don't get very many. I've been shooting the same horses for 27 years. Got it, yeah. I walk up and put my hands on them, and a horse can tell, and their eyes soften. And right. it's just, it's a God-given talent. Yeah. It's not something you can learn. It's something that, just like a dog or anything else, you, the dog can tell a person in right. a heartbeat. Right. If that dog don't want to let that person in, you better watch it. Better watch you it. Know? Right. And horses are the same way. 90% of them, but a lot of guys have trouble shooting the horses that I shoe because I hold them different. 
I never pick a horse's leg up real high. I've learned, I'm tall, uh-huh. and I learned how to keep their foot low to the ground. And a normal horseshoe comes in and raises them up, so and they they'll can, fight them, right. you know. But it's, 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 it's gratifying, you know, to do that kind of work. I bet it is. Just to, to kind of wrap things up here, is there uh, anything you can give our audience a, a tip about horsemanship, maybe something that you that you learned that you kind of, uh, maybe a light came on or a lesson that you, that you got uh, from somebody that just kind of changed your direction of how you looked at horses? It might have even been back when you were... Take your time with them. Take your time. It, a horse very seldom gets past an eight-year-old in their mind, a, a human. A horse is, uh, it takes years. That's why most of the horses that are being used at the finals in the high quality, you know, for a lot of money competing are 14 to 20 years old because it takes them that long to mature to where they don't make a mistake. In every horse, you have, you have to take your time with them. I don't carry a twitch. I don't carry a lip chain. Uh-huh. I've got one horse that I have to give some drugs to that belongs to my nephew. He was a great, he's a great horse or I wouldn't even mess with him. Right. But he was mistreated. They used to throw him down and tie him up and shoe him. Wow. And to this day, if I'm by myself and nobody else is around, I can shoot. Yeah. But if someone's standing there and he looks at him and don't like him, you ain't going to get him shot. You know, you have to take your time. And it, it does take a lot of time. I know a lot of the, um, my audiences rec- are recreational riders. Yeah. And they've got full-time jobs and they've got families. And, you know, they may only get to see their horse once a week or at the, you know, at the stable. Well, that's, that's, that's the problem with horses today. I go down there and these horses, they give a lot of money for them. These kids come in to ride them. They pull up in their Porsche. Right. They get out. They go in the restroom. They change into their riding clothes. The groom is saddling, let him out. They climb up on the mounting block, riding for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. They hand him back to the groom and go get back in their horse. The horse has no contact. My horse right now, this horse that I bought him after the other horse passed away, he's 14 years old, and it took me about two months to where I could catch him. Wow. Without him being... And now I can walk out there in the middle of that field, and he'll come right to me. He trusts me. And a horse has to trust you. They're so, like, they're, you know, there's so much like a human. If you don't trust somebody, you're going to keep an eye on them. But people don't take the time to, to build a bond with their horse and get that horse to trust them. You've got to make them stay in their space and not walk over you. That's what happens, ruins more horses. People let the horse take advantage of them. Yes. And they knock them down, they buck them off, they hurt them. Right. Instead of making the horse just like a kid... You stay in your space and I'll stay in mine and I won't interfere with you and you don't interfere with me. You know, it's Well that's great advice, Ernest. And I really appreciate you taking time out of your your morning here and giving us a chat. No problem. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks to Ernest for sharing his time. If you know someone you'd like to hear on the show, drop me a line. Or if you have thoughts on not only this episode but the show in general. It's easy to contact me. Just send it to john at woepodcast.com. I love hearing from you. 
Find out more about our show at the aforementioned woepodcast.com. Every episode is listed there, along with links to our YouTube channel, which now boasts over 100 videos. We've got over 2,000 subscribers and over 800,000 views. Thanks, guys. Woe Podcast has over 100 audio episodes, too. You can find them not only on iTunes, but Stitcher, Google+, and everywhere else podcasts are listed. And the best part? They're all free. Thanks again for listening to the show and sharing this podcast. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.